there. This is the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. On the show, it can seem like with all the nutritional advice, we hear things one day and another day it's the opposite. Take fats. In the late 90s, we were told to avoid them. Now they say to embrace natural fats. Then there was the craze about refined sugar and replacing it with synthetic ones, which are now, they say, bad for us. While a recent study on staying hydrated says maybe it's time to drop the advice to have eight glasses of water a day. And we also welcome the new Minister of Innovation, Brenda Bailey. But first, how is interest rate connected to inflation outcomes? Let's take a listen. It's time to talk about the economy. Interest rate hikes are making it harder to buy necessities like grocery and services. Now, it may seem counterintuitive, but when it comes to curbing inflation, making a life less affordable for Canadians is exactly the Bank of Canada's point. To explain how and why that's the strategy, I'm joined by David McDonald. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Hi, David. Hi. It's great to have you here. So Bank of Canada has raised rates again, and people are wondering... Wait, hang on a sec. Uh, Won't the rising interest rates make it harder to pay my mortgage or utilities uh, by necessities like food and gas? And apparently the answer is yes, and that's the point. So how does hitting Canadians harder with the interest rates curb inflation? I mean, what's interesting, too, is that the higher mortgage payments that Canadians are making when they renew mortgages is actually increasing inflation uh, because mortgage payments are part of the inflation calculation, right. the overall average. So in essence, the Bank of Canada is increasing inflation when it increases interest rates. The, yeah. yeah, I mean, the Bank of Canada has one instrument. It is interest rates. So it can't do anything else that might decrease prices in particular ways. It can only increase or decrease interest rates. And so uh, the, you know, the economic orthodoxy here is that if you increase interest rates enough, you cause a recession. People lose their jobs, they, uh, you know, they're working less, and so they don't have as much money to spend on right. food and gas. And so then the price of food and gas goes down because you don't need food. Well, you don't need gas maybe if you're not driving to a job anymore. Um, and so that's, that's likely the path that we are on, is mm-hmm. that interest rates will continue to increase to take money out of consumers' pockets, make it more expensive for consumers, um, so they can't spend that money elsewhere in the economy. Yeah. Um, in the hopes that that will that that will decrease uh, decrease the rate at which prices are increasing. Yeah, uh, the economy was growing um, pretty well in the first half of the year. Now it's it's slowing, with warnings that it's going to continue to slow next year, and that, as you just said right now, that we're headed for harder times in early twenty twenty three. Some are calling it a soft recession. So this is going to mean that lower and middle class folks uh, should get poorer and then work harder and longer to get back on their feet, right? Yeah, and in fact, uh, you know, working Canadians are going to be well aware of the fact that uh, their wages are not keeping up with inflation. So wages have been going up. The labor market has been reasonably strong. It's been a great time to get a job. Uh, but wages are not at, or they're certainly not exceeding the rate of inflation. And what that means for you know, average Canadians is that they're taking a pay cut for every month that they work because the price of uh, everything that they buy is going up faster than their wages. Now, when it comes to the overall economy, uh, you know, it's been it's been not terribly strong since uh, since the summer. We've seen pretty tepid growth, but it's been positive growth. Uh, you know, if we haven't seen negative growth yet. Um, now, 
once we get to the fourth quarter that we're in presently uh, of this year and the first quarter of next year, the bank now puts the odds uh, of a recession or, or negative growth in those uh, in those quarters at about 50-50. So it's, it's, it's like it's possible, it's not necessarily likely, but it's certainly possible that we would see a recession. Um, in terms of the job market, we're seeing very little weakness, frankly. I mean, it's a fairly strong job market. Now, wages aren't increasing as quickly as inflation, but in terms of unemployment, it's at historic lows. And so I think when we think about a possible recession or coming recession, this is not a recession that would be caused by some external factors. This is a recession engineered on purpose by the Bank of Canada to decrease inflation. Uh, and that's, that's the way to think about it. This is something we're bringing on uh, to ourselves on purpose with the, with the hope that it will bring down inflation. Yeah, deliberate. Do we expect that recession to be long or, or hard? Well, I mean, the initial promise of the Bank of Canada was a soft landing, which is to say that in, that um, inflation would come down, but we wouldn't end up in a recession. That seems increasingly unlikely. Historically speaking, we've never had a soft landing. So we've never brought down uh, inflation by the amount that we would need uh, this time around without a recession. It's always come via a recession. Now, when we look at whether, so that, you know, now I think that that most people don't expect a soft landing. Most people expect a recession. Uh, the question is whether it's a long or a short recession, I suppose, uh, and how deep it is. Now, you know, when we look into next year, one of the big differences in a recession this time around versus recessions that we've seen over the past quarter century is the Bank of Canada will likely not decrease interest rates in the recession to help spur economic growth and shorten the length of the recession. They will keep those interest rates high until they see the inflation rate coming down. And so in previous recessions, you know, you'd get a recession, people would lose their jobs, the Bank of Canada would drop the interest rate, and that would encourage, say, homeowners to buy a, you know, to go buy a bigger house or, you know, take out, uh, you know, buy a car or something like that. And that would push push economic growth and drive um, things like, uh, you know, the, the unemployment rate down. That's not what's going to happen this recession. This time around, we'll see rates stay much higher and the bank won't won't help, in essence, to get the economy back on its feet again. So interesting. I, I think for a lot of people, I'm no, I'm not an economist, uh, economist, and I think a lot of our listeners probably are shaking their heads right now too, trying to understand this. So for bankers, it's okay this idea to raise prices, to increase profits, to secure the businesses position. But this is going to end up in some small businesses closing uh, and overall job losses. That's what the Bank of Canada's uh, TIF Macklem has publicly predicted is going to happen in 2023. It's what you're echoing right now. And that we're in this kind of, we're going to be in a, a upcoming hard winter for employment. And all while our banks are making huge profits. So say if an aggressively rising interest rate was not the route taken, what alternatives exist? Yeah, I mean, governments have really handed off responsibility to the Bank of Canada for attempting to control prices. Uh, it doesn't have to be the Bank of Canada that, that attempts to control prices because of what we've, you know, what we've talked about is it's usually via recession, people lose their jobs and so on. Uh, there are other ways that governments actually do directly control prices and they could work harder to push those prices down. So, for instance, provincial governments control, well, most of them anyway, control the rate at which rent goes up and so you could but right. keep that in check by setting, you know, lower rent increases. That's part of the inflation calculation. Um, governments basically set what what tuition rates would be. They basically set what transit fares would be. Those are all things that are part of the inflation calculation. 
the federal government uh, sets the rules for mortgage underwriting. So they, they set the rules for who gets mortgages and how they get mortgages. One of the big drivers of much higher house uh, prices since the start of the pandemic has been investors. And, you know, in big markets, a quarter of all um, residential real estate is owned by investors now. And so you could just change the rules so that it was much harder for investors to buy residential real estate and, in essence, pull them out of the market with the goal of decreasing uh, house prices. But, you know, this is this is the difference between, you know, doing this through mortgage underwriting rules versus doing this through higher interest rates is you could decrease house prices through the through changing mortgage underwriting rules, but you don't increase the cost of mortgages. Right. And so that's the difference. Now, at present, that's not the route governments have taken. They've all just kind of taken their hands off the wheel and hope that the Bank of Canada will put their hands on the wheel. But it's a different approach and it can be a much more damaging approach for uh, for workers I mean, one of the things that you point out is that this period of inflation has been tremendously good for corporate profits. We're yes. getting record high corporate profits yep. uh, in the banking industry, but also in the oil and gas industry and the refining industry. You think, you know, I'm paying all this extra money in the gas, but the money's going someplace. The money's right? going the money's somewhere. Going, it's going somewhere. It's going into corporate profits. And so, I mean, this has been a tremendous period for, for corporate profits. And, you know, and the bank is saying, look, workers, you need to take bigger pay cuts because your pay cuts have not been big enough so far once you adjust for inflation so that we can get out of this inflationary trap. No one's saying to the corporate sector, look, corporate sector, you need to stop jacking up your prices so that we can stop this inflation. I mean, that is something we could do. I mean, we do have a competition bureau federally that, that, that can step in and say, uh, you, know, these, the, you know, these price increases are too large or your margins are too big. That's not generally how we use it, but it, it could be. Um, but, uh, you know, that part of it, despite the statistics clearly showing there's not workers driving this, workers are taking real pay cuts after inflation. Uh, the corporate sector is running away with all these inflationary gains. But yeah. That's not what we're focused on. And so that's unfortunate because I think it, it speaks to what is happening. Um, but governments have kind of said, look, inflation, they, they don't want to be responsible for inflation. And so they've just said, look, it's the Bank of Canada's problem. And so inflation doesn't go away. They can blame the bank, I suppose. If they were much more involved in attempting to control the prices under their purview, maybe they might wear some of that, uh, you know, inflation's not coming down. But I, mean, I guess politically, I suppose if you say it's the bank's problem, you don't have to wear it, even though, you know, it's probably much better if, if everybody was trying to bring down inflation, not just the Bank of Canada using interest rate policy, which can be very damaging and have a lot of secondary um, you know, secondary impacts when it comes to, to uh, employment. Yeah, but I guess, as you say, they're just using their one and only instrument. Uh, the Bank of Canada has interest rates to play with and not much else. All right, David, I'm sorry we're going to have to leave it there because I could talk to you about this for quite some time, I feel. Thanks for being on the show today. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. Here's a question for you. How many glasses of water do you drink a day? Now... How many glasses of water do you think you should be drinking a day? Apparently, a lot of us might be operating on some myths around the amount of water that we need to stay hydrated. For more, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Thornton. She's a former Olympic rower and a sports medicine physician. Good morning, Dr. Thornton. Good morning. All right. So I think we can, I think most people would say that we've heard the eight glasses of water a day is the ideal that we should be getting. That's the goal. Would you agree with that? Well, I think it's it's funny. I think over time we've started to debunk that it's a bit of a myth. I think uh, a lot of us have operated under the assumption that 
maybe thirst is too late of a cue and we should have been drinking before we get thirsty or that there's a magic number with uh, that, that number eight glasses of water per day. But interestingly, a recent article uh, paper came out of Wisconsin at the Journal of Science and researchers actually looked at the water intake and patterns of more than 5,000 people across 26 countries. And they found that how much water our bodies actually require depends on a lot of different factors. So that probably that magic number of eight can be quite variable depending on who you are and what you do. Okay. Could eight be a minimum? Well, it's interesting. So even within this study that they found that daily averages, so they looked at people between the ages of eight and 96 years of age and daily averages of something that they call water turnover. So how many water you take in and put out daily averages were ranged between a liter per day and six liters per day. So if you think about it that way, and, and one glass of water is about 240 mils, so about four glasses of water in a liter, you can see that it is very variable. So you could have as few as four glasses and, uh, you know, up to uh, in the 20s. So it really does depend on a number of different factors. Sorry, could you repeat that part, Jane? You said that average could be between one liter a day and some people are having eight well, yeah, six liters a day. In fact, they found that uh, some people have as much as 10 liters. My goodness. Uh, just in terms of the amount of water turnover. So it can really depend on things like environment in terms of activity level, intensity, age plays a factor, sex plays a factor. All sorts of things can, can relate to how much water we may need on a, on a, given, on a given day. Oh, that's fascinating. I know that myself, when I uh, do hot yoga, like if I do uh, an hour long class of hot yoga, just in the room alone, I can easily put back three liters and have electrolytes in my water later on in the day. And I still am going to bed thirsty, like feeling very dehydrated. Whereas on other days, oh, I'm lucky sometimes to get that liter and I have to remind myself. Exactly. Yeah. And I find that the case for a lot of people. And I think, too, for those of us that are in front of screens all day, maybe we're a bit distracted and not really paying attention to those cues. So certainly there may be people that are under hydrating out there, but uh, it's really a question of getting those cues and drinking when you're thirsty. and, And that can certainly help with our hydration levels throughout the day. So tell us about that whole first sign of hydration thing, because I have read before that if you are thirsty, it's already too late. You're already dehydrated. Is that true? Right. So I I think, again, it comes back to where our attention is. And it could be when we're immersed in our work or other activities, it could be that we're not really paying attention to it. But in general, thirst is a great cue for us. And yes, when we start having symptoms of dehydration, so beyond thirst, so we're kind of ignoring that first cue of thirst and we're starting to feel things like difficulty concentrating maybe or poor memory or bad moods. Those are those are signs for us that we may actually be, be becoming dehydrated. And I think the important thing too is that it does vary depending on age. So the very young and the very or older adults, for example, have decreased sensations of thirst or even decreased ability to voice their need for, for hydration. And so those are people that it's probably not going to work just to think of that thirst mechanism as, as the cue. Um, and then certainly other people might be having chronic illnesses or taking medications, things like that. They all tend to affect how much fluid we need and things like that. So if you, I don't, I don't think we all necessarily kind of attribute these like difficulty concentrating, poor memory, bad moods 
to water or to lack of hydration. I think that's where we may be, uh, it may be beneficial for us to become a little bit more aware of those, those kinds of signs in order to keep upping our fluid. Sure. I think a lot of people sometimes uh, will attribute their dizziness, for example, to not getting enough sleep, but then right. they hydrate yes. and they're like, oh, I feel fantastic. Exactly. Or hunger. I mean, a, sure. a lot of people start craving sugar when they're thirsty as well. So again, a few things that we can probably turn our attention to to better habits. And then what about electrolytes? What kind of a role do those play? Like, does one need to hydrate less if they're taking electrolytes? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and essentially, electrolytes have a couple of um, a couple of roles, but they help actually keep uh, keep us hydrated. They don't. We don't necessarily need a, a lot of electrolytes for people who may not be exercising too strenuously. You know, hot yoga is an example of where it might be an extreme condition where we're working out where it might we may need something a little extra. There's a bit of a rule of thumb to most athletes that whereas if you're doing something aerobic. Uh, activity, so meaning uh, using your lungs and, and cardiovascular system a lot strenuously. Under an hour, you're probably okay, but if you're going over an hour, you may want to add in some electrolytes. And again, they just help to um, essentially provide some, uh, well, oftentimes the drinks, the electrolyte uh, has some sugar or calories that can help as well, uh, but it certain, certainly helps replace some of the the minerals and things that were, um, you know, electrolytes that we are missing essentially that, that we get depleted in our sweat. So for example, we start losing sodium, potassium, magnesium, those kinds of things when we sweat a lot. So we want to replace those in order to keep the, the water balance correct in the cells in our body. And what role does our, our food play? Because I know that on some days when we're eating, you know, lots of fruits, tons of fruits throughout the day and veggies, um, sometimes it can be harder to remember to hydrate, but then is it not as necessary? Right. So some of the, some fruits and veggies are great for things like this. So even thinking about, you know, we could probably all think of watermelon, for example, but you may not know so much about spinach or those kinds of things in, in terms of a lot of high water content in some of the, the, the foods that we eat. For things like potassium, um, some electrolytes, for example, eating bananas, things like that can certainly help with the, those in, imbalances and things like that. But certainly a lot of processed foods tend to have uh, less uh, water and more so, uh, well, unless we have kind of sugary drinks, those kinds of things. Uh, but essentially having a lot of fruits and vegetables can certainly contribute to the overall water balance. So that is another key factor in order to stay hydrated throughout the day, for sure. So you were an Olympic rower. Now you're a sports mm -hmm. medicine physician. When you look back at your hydration habits uh, when you were competing, do you, with what you know now, uh, were you on point or, or what would you do differently? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think we were. And it's funny with elite athletes is that you start uh, understanding very specifically what works for you and what doesn't. And, and if you don't learn that essentially throughout your com uh, competitive years, then you won't necessarily achieve what you want to be achieving. And I think one of the aspects that we used to, we used to do, which I would recommend to anyone in, engaged in uh, strenuous activity of any kind is, especially if you have an upcoming competition or something that's particularly important for you, this is the time now in your training, things like that, to test out what works for you. So again, some people really want to have electrolytes. They want to have other things in their beverages while they're uh, competing or training, and, and they want to have that first thing right away. Um, that could be caffeine, protein, electrolytes, all sorts of things can play a role 
in terms of uh, enhancing performance. And, and some people really like those. Some people swear just by minimal amounts of water, and that's, that's okay for them. Uh, and, that's, and water is their beverage of choice. So I would just suggest that in terms of whatever you're doing, if it's something sport-related, and it's just to really get a sense of practicing as much as you can in a training environment to see, to see what works for you. But, yes, I absolutely was lucky. We had different coaches uh, using different strategies, some a lot of water and some would suggest none at all and things like that. And I think over time we got to a, a place where we knew pretty well what would work for us on an individual basis. Jane, it's impossible to talk to you about hydration without feeling really thirsty. <laughs> no doubt. I know. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and explaining that all to us. You're welcome. Anytime. Thanks for having me. In Premier David Eby's recent cabinet shuffle, Brenda Bailey was named the province's new Minister of Jobs, Economic Development and Innovation. She was previously Parliamentary Secretary for Technology and Innovation. Welcome to the show, Minister Bailey. Thank you very much for having me. Well, and congratulations on the new position. Thanks very much. I'm sure you're off to the races already. Yeah, it's been a very busy few days, that's for sure. (laughs) So what are the priorities in the new role? I, there are many, but I, I would say the thing that I'm starting with first is really reaching out to stakeholders and ensuring that uh, I establish those relationships. And, you know, one of the perspectives that I bring to this role is um, coming from the tech sector myself. I worked in the sector for 20 years, and uh, everything we do is by team. And um, I'm definitely bringing that collaborative approach to my work. So connecting up with uh, important stakeholders and learning what their needs are and um, moving forward in a collaborative way. Okay, and who are those stakeholders? There are many. (laughs) Um, A big part of the portfolio is um, working in the tech sector with the various subsectors like um, biotech, the clean tech sector, uh, agri-tech. There's there's all um, sorts of amazing innovation that are happening in those sectors. So certainly um, those groups are very important, but also importantly for me are parts of the economy that I've had less personal experience in. So ensuring that I travel the province and uh, connect with forestry-based industry and um, really uh, a broader understanding of everything that's happening in the province. And Minister, as you mentioned, you already have strong ties to the province's tech sector, professionally and personally. You have extensive experience in the digital gaming uh, space as an entrepreneur too. Mm -hmm. So you founded a video game studio over a decade ago. Can you take me back to your experience navigating that space from those days and how they might inform your new role? Yeah, absolutely. So I found, uh, I co-founded two video game studios, two software studios, one in 2004 and one in 2011. And I think um, regardless of the space that it's in, once you've had the experience of being an entrepreneur and running a small business and, uh, you know, being someone who's responsible for many people on your payroll, um, it, it, I think it allows me to bring the lens of small business into government. And um, I've only been elected for two years, and I really do think of myself as a business person first and a politician second. And so my hope is that um, my understanding of what it's like to be uh, an entrepreneur, to be a business person, the challenges you're faced with. And I certainly think a lot about um, the challenges folks are faced with right now with um, the global economy, 
um, you know, the rising costs. Um, and I think my perspectives are going to help me uh, work very, very closely with the small and medium-sized businesses to ensure their success going forward. How is BC doing in attracting tech entrepreneurs? We're doing extraordinarily well, actually. Um, and we've seen tremendous growth in the tech sector uh, since 2020, but you know, of the many years leading up to that as well. Uh, there was a really interesting study that came out from CBRE just last week that showed that of 30 um, tech hubs in North America, really all the big hubs, um, Vancouver actually led growth um, of all of them. So we saw a 44.2% uh, job growth in tech in 2020-2021, which was the highest, uh, higher than you know places like Austin and Seattle and Toronto and Montreal. So um, that, that's great news for the sector, and these are really, really good jobs. But it's very important that we as government ensure that um, that, that growth can be successful. And that you know comes back to really important things like housing and childcare and healthcare. So we've got our work cut out for us, and we're ready to do it. Those uh, CBRE numbers around Vancouver as a tech hub and, and its growth are, are encouraging. What is your understanding of the reasons behind that growth? You know, that's a really great question, and it, it's something I've thought about a lot. I mean, but Vancouver has been that's kind of outperforming in particular subsectors in tech for quite some time. And um, I, I don't know what it is, really. I mean, we've got a great startup community. We've got... Um, Perhaps it's a frontier mentality. The risk-taking is, is very um, uh, kind of embedded in our tech sector. Um, we've got really deep roots in tech. Many people don't know that you know, some of the tech we use every day, you hear big names like Microsoft and Amazon, but much of that tech was actually built here by people who uh, then sold their companies into these larger companies. We've got deep, deep, deep roots in technology. And why we're sort of punching above our weight is it's, it's an interesting question. Um, want to make sure we keep doing it. That's that's for sure. Yeah, and the Bank of Canada is warning of their engineered recession that uh, coming out of rising interest rates, higher inflation, that the next thing we can expect, unfortunately, is layoffs and job losses. Uh, this is all coming out of a period of, of high employment here in BC. So what's your outlook for dealing with that expected unemployment yeah, you know, BC has actually come out of uh, the pandemic and the other challenges that we've been faced with stronger than most communities. And I think that's going to hold us in good stead as we face um, more challenging economic times going ahead because of global conditions. So I think that's one really positive thing. We are starting to see some layoffs in the tech sector, but we're also, um, so far, seeing those folks finding other positions. There's still many, many, many jobs open in the tech sector that folks haven't been able to fill. Um, but really, you know, part of the role that um, that I'm in now is to ensure that as these challenges come forward, that that we're ready to face them and support uh, small businesses and and people most and foremost. Yeah, I think some people are are starting to wonder too what else the government can do to mitigate rather than you know, handing the problem over to the Bank of Canada to solve when their only tool is the interest rate. How can the province soften that blow for BC residents who are going to be affected? Yeah, a number of different ways, but I'll give you one example. You know, one thing that happens as interest rates grow, go up is that uh, investment dollars sometimes shrink. And, um, you know, of course, to keep our economy strong, we need investment dollars coming in. So that's another area of importance to us. And we've stood up a, um, 
a strategic growth fund called NBC. Um, it's uh, now functioning. We're going to be pushing our first investments out the door uh, currently. And that's a $500 million strategic growth fund. So I'm, I'm very pleased that that's been stood up and is ready to roll um, because it's really important that we keep investments going. It's also our job to attract investment to British Columbia, which is something we're, we're very devoted to. Um, in the new structure of this ministry, uh, trade diversification is also a priority. I've been um, very fortunate that a colleague, uh, Minister Dragut Brar, is going to be working with me on that file. Uh, and we have lots of work to do there to ensure that we're bringing in investment uh, to allow continued growth in our economy. Okay, Minister, we'll have to leave it there. Congratulations again on uh, the new role, and we'd love to have you on again soon. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.